Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. The writer Christopher West tells of the incident back in 1977 when NASA launched Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 into orbit. As a part of that process, they included aboard Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 a gold-plated audio-visual disc that came to be known as the Golden Record. It contained a fair bit of information. It contained images, photo images from the Earth, the life forms on Earth, human beings and animals and nature, those kinds of scenes. It also included files that had sound to them, the sound of whales, the sound of waves crashing on the shore, the sound of a baby crying. It even had messages. One message was from the President of the United States. Another message was from the United Nations General Secretary. And then it had music. It had different varieties of music, different kinds of music that was to be included there. They made some choices as to what would be included. The purpose of the entire golden record was this. What if, they said, what if out there there was intelligent life? What if they managed to secure Voyager 1 and Voyager 2? What if they wondered what in the world was happening on this planet called Earth? This golden record would give them the kind of information required to know something about life as a human being on planet Earth. What interests me about that story is one key choice that was made about the music to include. They called this audiovisual disc, this golden record, the Sounds of Earth. A woman named Annie Druyan was the creative director behind the Voyager Interstellar Message Project. I want you to hear her words as she describes, as she reflected 30 years later on what she chose to include, what she herself chose to include, a piece of music on that disc. These are her words. The first thing I found myself thinking was thinking of a piece by Beethoven from Opus 130, something called the Cavatina Movement. When I first heard this piece of music, I thought, Beethoven. How can I ever repay you? What can I ever do for you that would be commensurate with what you've just given me? And so as soon as my colleague at NASA said to me, you know, this message is going to last a thousand million years, <laughs> I thought of this great, beautiful, sad piece of music on which Beethoven had written in the margin the German word sensut, which is German for longing. Part of what we wanted to capture in the Voyager message was this great longing we human beings feel. Now back to Christopher West's words. 
So in the end, NASA chose a great song of human longing and launched it into space. It's as if NASA scientists were saying to the rest of the universe, this is who and what we are as human beings. We are creatures of longing. And so there it went into outer space. The message that we human beings offered we are creatures of longing. You felt it, haven't you? That inner longing, that yearning, that pining, maybe for another place, another time, maybe for a different kind of experience, it may be for a homeland, it may be for a certain delectable kind of food, maybe for a person. It may be a yearning, a longing for a sense of permanence. It may be a longing, a yearning to mean something, to have meaning in life. But my guess is, if you're honest with yourself, if you spent any time this past week with your own thoughts, turning off all the music, all the noise that surrounds us, that you were more than likely aware of some inner longing. When you were aware of that, you would probably resonate with the message launched into space, we human beings are creatures of longing. We're in the second of our series, More Than Words, series on the Psalms, begun so well, so well last week by Pastor Joey. We come to the second one today. It's our hope and our plan and our desire in this series to delve into just something deeper, than the words, even than the music, to enter into the experience of the psalmist as they wrote. Today we come to Psalm 42 and 43. It's two psalms in the English Bible. Actually, in many of the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, it was one psalm. It, it is just one psalm, and we will approach it today as one song. But before we come to reading parts of the song a bit at a time, I want to give you a bit of context. It will begin to emerge as we read the words, but a bit of context is in order. As we read through the psalm, it seems that when the psalmist sat down to put words to page, he was going through some grappling, wrestling, difficult, agonizing times. There were questions on his mind. Where is God? God, what am I supposed to say in answer to my enemies who taunt me and ask me, where is your God? I remember back in the day, God, back at your temple in Jerusalem on your holy hill, I remember leading a joyful procession in joyous worship all the way into your presence, and I remember how we celebrated your presence together. But that was then, and this is now. Now I am distant from you. Now the distance is certainly geographic, as we read the psalm, the psalmist locates himself in the northern part of ancient Palestine, up near the snow-capped Mount Hermon. Jerusalem lies to the south, and he thinks wistfully of Jerusalem and the temple that symbolizes to him the presence of God. So he's geographically distant. But if you pay attention to the words, if you listen to the questions, if you can hear the music, you will also detect that there is a spiritual distance that for some reason, we don't know why, had set in. 
He's longing for God. Feels cut off from God. Now, this song unfolds in three stanzas. It's really quite easy to mark. You will notice that about every five verses, six verses, we come to a verse that is identical, that repeats itself three times, precisely the same words. Those verses mark the end of each stanza. Three stanzas. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to suggest to you one word that captures the essence of each stanza. So we begin with, so we begin with stanza one. I think the word, at least the word that I've chosen to capture the essence of that stanza, is the word yearning. Yearning. So begin reading with me. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the Mighty One with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? This is the repeating verse. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Did you notice how the psalm begins? As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. A little bit less than a year ago, our daughter Miranda and I had the privilege of being in the Kruger National Park in South Africa. Our hosts, Jan and Vilma Helberg, were taking us through the park, and we had stopped in their vehicle, stopped near a watering hole. Now, there was drought going on. The place was dry and actually looked quite devastated. So whether or not you could see wildlife other places at a watering hole, guaranteed. And so there we sat at the watering hole watching as the different animals all came together and down into the water they went to drink, to take drafts of that life-giving liquid. And then emerging from the shrub brush came two large Cape buffaloes. They ambled toward the water and down they went into the water. And as soon as they started down, everybody else scattered. Everybody else out of the pool. They went in and they drank their fill while the others, still obviously very thirsty, waited and waited until finally in leisurely fashion they moved out of the pool and the others returned. But we stayed. We waited. And before too very long, we saw a pack of wild African dogs. Our host immediately said, you don't see those very often. Be sure and get good pictures of those. And they now approached the pool began down the embankment, but they were very skittish. They would walk two or three steps down and then jump back, look around, and then back down, looking at the water, back and forth. It was a slow process. One could tell by looking at them, especially against the backdrop of the, of the devastation that drought brings behind them. They must have been dying of thirst. 
And then I realized what was happening. Those dogs realized that for them, death lurked beneath the placid surface. Who knew? But as they began to lap the liquid, if suddenly it would erupt in a burst of froth as a crocodile clamped down its jaws and pulled one of their number beneath. And so they were very tentative, forward and then back, and then closer and then back. But finally, that what must have been raging thirst drove them to risk it all, and they drank. Nothing happened while we were there anyway, except that they slaked their thirst. It is that kind of an image that the psalmist has in mind. He gives us an image from the world of his day. Southern part of Palestine, the devastated desert there, he pictures a deer making its way across the desert, mouth agape, panting, looking for anywhere to find some pool, even of brackish water, to try to, to, to quench its thirst. The psalmist says, Lord, when I see that, I think of the yearning I have in my heart and soul. There is this deep yearning, this longing within me to be with you. I yearn. My soul pants for the living God. Honestly, when I read that and I think about us 2,000 years later, I'm guessing that most of us would not describe our desire for God in such stark terms. We would say, well, I do have yearnings within me. I do have longings in my heart. But they're usually for other kinds of things. May I suggest something to you? that many of our emotional, many of our spiritual yearnings are at the core actually yearnings for God. We don't understand them that way, but ultimately, at the core, that's what they are. There is, as it were, a God-shaped hole in our souls, and it will never be filled and never fully be satisfied until it is God that fills us in that place. There are some who recognize that. In fact, I was interested to read this past week of an English writer by the name of Julian Barnes. Julian Barnes is very upfront. He says, I'm an agnostic. Church was not part of my growing up. I never went to Sunday school. In fact, he said, I don't think I've ever been to a church service. I don't believe in God. But he recognized that there was this yearning within him, so much so that in one of his books, here's his opening line. He says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Curious, is it not? Or self-proclaimed agnostic, don't believe in him. Oh, but there's a hole in me, the shape that God ought to be that I would like to fill. Well, the psalmist realizes what it is that will fill him. 
And so when he says, I'm yearning, and I'm asking questions, and I'm weeping, and I'm remembering the past when I did feel connected with God, when he says all of that, he says, I know what would fill me. So God, my soul yearns for you. Seems a strange picture, a deer panting for water. When you take your dog out walking on one of our nice, cool summer days when it's about 107, and you see that dog panting, most of us don't look at that and think, that's how I yearn for God. It seems too earthy of an image. But I want you to consider the words of the late, great A.W. Tozer. Very little education, maybe even less theological education, except what he himself obtained through much reading. And yet he penned some classics that have endured to this very day, one of them being titled The Pursuit of God. In The Pursuit of God, listen to how Tozer describes the kind of yearning that those men and women had for God. He writes, Come near to the holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. Moses used the fact that he knew God as an argument for knowing him better. Now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I, might, that I may find grace in thy sight. And from there he rose to make the daring request, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. God was frankly pleased by this display of ardor, and the next day called Moses into the mount, and there in solemn procession made all his glory pass before him. Did you catch that line of Tozer's? If you stand close to them, you will feel the heat of their desire after God, yearning exactly what the psalmist is doing. What about you? If you sit in the stillness, I suspect you will recognize a yearning for something. At the core, could it be that that for which you yearn is God? It's a song. So we move to the second stanza. Stanza number one, yearning. Stanza number two, weeping. Weeping. Psalm 42, beginning in verse 6. My soul is downcast within me, Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer in mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, Where is your God? And then the verse again, end of the stanza, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Stanza number two, weeping. Did you notice 
the questions, especially toward the end of the stanza that he asks of God, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Why must I listen to the taunts of my foes who say to me, so, where's your God? Show us your God. We'd like to see him. I'm in agony here, he says. My life is caught up in weeping because the yearning that I experience has not been satisfied. Now, you notice there, no doubt, in verse 7 where he talks about deep calling to deep and the waterfalls and the breakers and the waves and how they've all swept over him. Those are terms common in Hebrew poetry to indicate somebody who is in deep trouble. Somebody, if you get the picture, who's in the water and is going under, is fighting to keep his or her head above water, but the waves just keep sweeping over. That's the kind of experience he's facing. I'm drowning, God. When will you respond? On the one hand, my soul is panting for you in thirst, and on the other hand, I'm drowning in the water of trouble. Weeping. Now, when I think of us in this psalm, I expect that we may not recognize always just how we experience it. I mentioned earlier, it is my belief that many of the yearnings and the longings and the cravings we have that are of an emotional or a spiritual nature at the core can be satisfied in God. But when we fail to understand that, we begin to reach for other things that we believe can help meet those longings, only to discover that they deepen our cravings. They don't satisfy. You know the kinds of things I'm talking about. Anything in this world, sometimes good things, sometimes not. But we come to them placing upon them the expectation that they will satisfy our spiritual cravings. And when they don't, we end up weeping, calling out to God, when will this be met in my life? We reach for a bottle. We reach for a syringe. We click on a lurid website. We notice that person making eyes at us. We work until we drop. We shop until our card is maxed out, all the while believing that somewhere in that we will finally find satisfaction. After all, isn't that what the advertisers tell us? Drive the right car, you will find ultimate satisfaction. This past Sunday and Monday, Anita and I were privileged to be up with our son, Austin, up near Sunnyvale where he pastors. Our daughter, Miranda, was there with him. Father's Day, our daughter's 21st birthday, we were celebrating. My son said, I've got something for you, Dad. Got a surprise for you. What is it? Well, you'll just have to wait. So we drove to a place and finally got there, walked in. We walked into a showroom for Tesla. <laughs> You're getting me a Tesla? Oh, man, they must pay better for pastors up here. <laughs> said, no, I got you a test drive, Dad, test drive. We're all going to take a test drive. Oh, that's just like getting the cravings going and then nothing. 
And so we went on this test drive in this Tesla. Oh, baby, that was amazing. Have you driven a Tesla? You haven't lived. You need to try it. So we get behind this wheel, and the lady that is there says, well, you can punch it. This has some power. And it just, whoo, set us back in the seat. I said, it's amazing how many ways this does not remind me of my car. <laughs> just amazing. <laughs> just amazing. So we reach out for something like that. I confess, even working on this sermon, there was something in me that just said, wow, you know what? If you could drive, if you could own this car, man your problems be over. <laughs> You'd be in great shape. It's so easy to buy into that. It will meet certain needs, no question, but it will not address those profound needs of the soul ever. Back in the day, when I was gaining my hours working toward a license in the state of California for marriage and family therapy, I remember something my supervisor said to me one day in session. We were discussing a particular client, out-of-control client. And pausing for a moment of reflection, my supervisor said to me, you know what? Above the doorway of every brothel, they ought to hang a sign that says, what you are really seeking is God. I've thought of that at different times over the years. I think they ought to hang that sign in a lot of places. I think over the dealer who's trying to sell illicit drugs to your child, they ought to hang a sign where your child can read it that says, what you are really seeking is God. I think at the above of that page of that maxed out credit card receipt, they ought to print what you are really seeking is God. I think for that person who is so alluring, inviting you, tempting you to violate the boundaries, above that person's head, they ought to have that sign that says what you are really seeking is God. All those ways that we try to satisfy the yearning that never meet it. What you are really seeking is God. I think of last week, we had the privilege of being at Montana camp meeting. Met a gentleman there by the name of Randy Jones. He said to me, I was on a trip, he said, and we were walking down the street of this city where we were, and we looked up and we saw a sign hanging over the doorway of a cantina. Just a little sign hanging there over the doorway that simply said, free drinks tomorrow. <laughs> free drinks tomorrow. They have what I want there. They have what I need there, whatever the place may be. So we come, so, oh, wrong day. Come tomorrow. We'll satisfy your needs tomorrow. And you know what the story is. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow never comes. And so we end up like the psalmist, weeping. We are left there with the yearning in our hearts and in our souls and the weeping coming from our eyes. But there are a few of us along the way who have come to realize that maybe the only thing that can satisfy our yearning is God. 
C.S. Lewis was one of those, so I want to read you his words, words out of mere Christianity, where he writes about such things in imagery that was germane to his day and time, but still to ours. Listen to what Lewis writes. A car is made to run on petrol, gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. In other words, to borrow from Lewis's imagery, it would be like saying, I've decided because of the expense involved, my car is going to run on water. I'll fill it with water. That'll be a lot cheaper. And yet I suspect many of us have tried that to satisfy the yearnings within, and we end up, as did the psalmist, weeping, asking, God, why have you forgotten me? Three stanzas. First stanza, yearning. Second stanza, weeping. And then the third stanza, which appears in chapter 43. I would give to this stanza the word returning. Returning. Psalm 43, 1, vindicate me, my God, and plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. You are God, my stronghold. Why have you rejected me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? Send me your light and your faithful care. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain, to the place where you dwell. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And then the phrase that ends each stanza, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Returning. He's still there, still the questions, but as he's asking the question, he suddenly emerges into a new space and says, Oh, God, lead me. Let your light and your faithfulness, your faithful covenant love, lead me back to the mountain of God that you might lead me into your presence, and there I will take joy and delight in worshiping you again. I will be in your presence and you will satisfy the deepest yearnings of my soul so that I will be filled with delight and with joy. You remember back in the first stanza when he was talking about that, when he was talking about going up to the mountain of God, leading the joyous procession, remember that? There it was a certain homesickness. He was saying, I remember when. But now in the third stanza, he is saying, lead me, God. I am returning to your place. I am returning to your presence. Like a homesick child, come home. I read to you the words of a woman named Pat Bailey of Batavia, Illinois, who writes the following. At last, the big day had come. My son Brian and his wife Becky were heading south to the Florida Keys for their 15th wedding anniversary. I had volunteered to house-sit and watch over my grandsons, Nathan, seven, and Joshua, five. The three of us were looking forward to our vacation, too. 
Pool splashing, happy meals, park Olympics, and snuggle time. Brian and Becky slipped into the boys' room around 5 a.m. to give last-minute hugs and kisses and to capture goodbye waves from the front window. When I woke an hour or so later, I could hear the telltale sounds of youthfulness echoing from the living room. Up and at it, these sounds reported. Your starting bell has already rung. Sure enough, I found Nate and Josh wrapped in blankets and staring at a cartoon on television. It was a rainy day, and it seemed to go on forever. The three of us played games, watched videos, and drew pictures. I got out my famous granny bag filled with surprises and produced a puppy and mouse marionette that delighted both boys. After that, we all stood at the window looking wistfully at the pool as it filled higher and higher with rainwater. It was a long day. At last, it was time for bed. Bath time was over, and the three of us were ready to sleep. And then, then the phone rang. It was Brian and Becky, and the boys jumped up to chat. As each one took a turn talking with their mom and dad, you guessed it, the tears began to flow. Soon, they were both utterly inconsolable. The whole situation had become too much. The boys were tired. Their mom and dad were so far away. And as much as they loved me, they wanted them. When we finally got back to the bedroom, I tried to quiet them as best I could. Josh eventually fell asleep with his mouth wide open, still crying. Nate, being older, couldn't stop thinking about his parents. He was like a record stuck in one spot, and he was wearing a groove so deep I had no idea how to help him. Through the wailing, his shaking arms reached out to me, and his little voice spoke some very profound words. Grandma, I'm homesick, but I'm at home. How can that be? <laughs> In the end, I took him into my room and let him cuddle up to me. I rubbed his back and spoke soft words until finally he fell asleep, and so did I. We only had one night of tears. It was Nathan's idea that his mom and dad should call during the day when he wasn't tired and it wasn't bedtime. Thankfully, it worked. Still, when Brian and Becky returned five days later, the boys were ecstatic. Their faces were filled with smiles, and they couldn't get close enough to each parent. At last, home was home. She finishes with these words. All of us are homesick, not for a place, but for a person, Jesus our hearts cry out, and we try to find him. We search in all kinds of places and things to fill the lonely, frightened places of our heart. And then we find that nothing but God can truly satisfy. So we return to the source of our life and the one who can satisfy our yearning. We all have yearnings, yearnings for a healthy family, yearnings for kids who do well in life, yearnings for parents who age gracefully and happily, yearnings for a meaningful job, yearnings to make a difference in life. Sometimes we don't hear the yearnings until every voice is stilled and every sound is silenced. But sometimes then the yearnings are so overwhelming that we, we get noise to fill the space again. But if you can linger long enough there to recognize the yearning, to go through some of the weeping, 
and to offer God your returning. God is sufficient. He can fulfill and satisfy the deepest needs of heart and soul. So I hope today, before you leave this place and certainly before the day ends, you will make a choice to turn to the only one who can truly satisfy. God of grace, we come before you with all the needs, all the desires, all the cravings of our heart. Lord, you made us this way. You know that you can fill those needs. Sometimes you do it through your spirit, and sometimes you do it through the people and the blessings of life. But whatever way you choose, I just pray that some person here today who came in with a deep yearning in the soul might hear more than the words, even more than the music of the psalm, might hear the experience and leave this place returning to God. Thank you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Could be that you've made a decision like that and you would like somebody to process that with and to pray about that with. Members of our prayer team would love to meet with you. To your left and my right, just across the patio is the prayer place. Prayer team members will be there after the service to meet you.